I want to go ahead and uh, say a few more words about both of our speakers. I will not come up again between the two, so let me go ahead and introduce David Gales and Logan Dagley. Uh, a young seminary graduate finished school and came to his first church in 1965. And uh, David and Phyllis served here from 65 to 71. And we have spoken through the years that I've been here, uh, I've spoken to David many times about his fond memories of his ministry here at Pitts and how this church took a new preacher boy and you loved on him and you prayed for him and you encouraged him and you helped him. And he's always been deeply appreciative of this church for that. Uh, you know, something you may not know, uh, I didn't know it until I spoke with David uh, some years ago. Both Moses and Elijah are buried out in our cemetery. <laughs> now, I thought Elijah went to heaven in that flaming chariot, but I'm told he's buried in our cemetery. So I thought their song, The Days of Elijah, was kind of unique, what I was going to say about that. Um, anyway, Moses and Elijah were David's dogs when he pastored here. <laughs> and they got run over, somebody coming over this hill, and he buried them in the cemetery. So one of our church members is buried beside two dogs. <laughs> <laughs> David, not only have... I heard you say such great things about our people here, but I have heard our people say great things about David. The ministry of the word that David Gales had here. And some of you have spoken to me about just how his expository preaching ministry was such a blessing to your heart. And for some of you, perhaps it was the first time you'd heard somebody just break open the Word and go verse by verse in passages and teach the Word. And so our people have spoken so kindly about what they remember of you doing that and how you honored the Lord through the preaching of His Word. And you always pointed people to Jesus. One of the first memories I have of Logan Dagley, I guess Logan had lost some kind of bet that was going on among the youth. They met in a double-wide trailer back there, and the big open room had big columns down the middle, and so if you were teaching the youth group, you had to kind of dodge the column. I remember one night, I think it was after vacation Bible school, Logan was seated outside and Kevin Seeger was shaving his head. You remember that? He had long, kind of long hair at the time and uh, he had lost some kind of bet. And so there went his hair and uh, his, his shaved head. Uh, 
But anyway, I don't know what the bet was. Maybe you can tell us about that. But <laughs> Logan is currently one of the campus pastors at Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. It's one of our largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's like eight or nine campuses now. And a huge church where uh, Dr. Uh, J.D. Greer, the president of our Southern Baptist Convention, uh, is the pastor. And Logan is one of the campus pastors. They have different satellite campuses. And Logan is about to go to New York City uh, through the ministry of Summit Church to be a church planter in New York City. After lunch today, our mission committee will actually be uh, speaking further with Logan about how we as a church can, can come alongside of him and uh, assist him in any way that we possibly can. So uh, you see, folks, through the ministry of the church, the, the gospel just keeps marching forward. Isn't that great? As God calls people out of our church into ministry and missions. So this morning, uh, listen prayerfully and attentively as both of these men break the bread of life to us through the preaching of God's Word. May God's blessings be on both of you. Make sure I got my watch out here. Scott told me to keep this to 20 to 25 minutes. And I usually preach 30 minutes, so I've got to knock off 5 to 10 minutes. <laughs> what an honor it is to be here at Pitts Baptist again. You know, we celebrate 75 years of the Lord's church at this location. And homecomings in churches are very special events that bring back memories of endearment to all of our hearts that's had a little part in it. And it's a time to celebrate the church's history. And it's a, the bond between former members and pastors who've been here before. It's an opportunity to do that. And today... I want to share with you from a text in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's stand and honor the Word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, a finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, this is your word, and we pray that you would magnify yourself today through it. In Jesus we ask, amen. I'd like to lift out of this text today just one little phrase that I would like to zero in on. And that is, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, I looked up the word witnesses, and it has several different meanings. One of the ones that I really enjoyed, though, we are surrounded by a great cloud of evidence. Evidence of who God is, what God can do, who Jesus Christ is, what he can do in changing a life. We're surrounded by 75 years of evidence. Look at the evidence. I'm looking at people today, and your life is evidence. Your life has been touched by Christ. And your life has been changed by Christ. Everybody here is evidence that Jesus Christ has touched you and has changed your life. And in this gathering today, the Spirit of Jesus uses us as evidence wherever we go. Seventy-five years ago, you came to this community to be evidence that God is what God has done, and Jesus Christ is real, his gospel is real, and Jesus can touch lives, and Jesus can change lives. And that's been going on for 75 years. Another passage that kind of goes in with this is in Acts chapter 1-8, a very familiar verse that you all know. You shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my evidence. You'll be my witness. A witness gives evidence. You'll be my evidence that Jesus is alive, and Jesus is alive in you. That's why the Holy Spirit comes. There's another passage that's not very familiar, but I love it. It's in Psalms 35, verse 4. And it says this, those who look to the Lord are radiant. And I got the, the Hebrew for that. And it simply means the people who look to the Lord are emitting something. Something is coming forth their life. They're transmitting something. They are evidence that God, there is a God and God is real and Jesus Christ, his son, came to this earth to die for our sins and rose again the third day to come to live and he's changed our life. We are his evidence. Pitts Baptist Church is God's evidence. Would you bear with me a little bit as I reflect? My wife will probably be doing this because I start reflecting I pastored this church, 24 years old, 
in 65 through 71, I guess around six years. So it's been 47 years since I pastored here. Ninety-five percent of my congregation is looking down on this celebration from heaven. They're in heaven. But a few of us are still alive and here today, and what a joy it is to see some of you after all of these years. Let me give you a, a quick portrait of this church back then, okay? It was semi-rural. Rural. Gravel trucks constantly came down the road. The parsonage was right beside the church here. By the way, whenever the Lord called us away from here, my wife says, thank God this other church don't have a parsonage beside the church. <laughs> Farmers taking their cotton up and down Pitt School Road. You could see little balls of cotton all the way down the road. That's the portrait I want you to see that I saw, my wife saw. And then there was the Cochran's gin that they were taking the cotton to. Mr. Cochran had a big old St. Bernard dog. He was one of the faithful attenders here at Pitts Baptist for years. <laughs> Miss Cranford, little Miss Cranford would walk up the road carrying the flowers to be, to be used, and that dog would follow her and come up here to the church and lay in front of the door of the church while we were having service. That's a portrait of Pitts Baptist Church in 1965-66. Can I tell you, it was also endearment to me because everything was new. Everything was first with me. I'd never done anything in the pastorate. I had preached and supplied. So here... I had my first pastorate, I had my first baptism, I had my first wedding, had my first funeral, I had my first deacon's meeting. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Let me share with you my first baptism. Boy, I was about ready to leave the ministry after that one. When I came here, the choir director, Mr. Keziah, his wife, they had been in church a long time, and they came out of the Southside Church, and she was saved as a, really a teenager. But she had never been baptized. She was afraid of water. She had never had her head under water. She was terrified of water. And said, would you know it? That's the person I would have to baptize. <laughs> so here she comes forward after all these years, and, and she says, Pastor, I want to be baptized. Well, it was on a Sunday night. We had baptism on Sunday night. I can, it's, the portrait here is so clear. The lights were off in the church over there. Lights on in the baptistry. I had maybe one or two other people to baptize. But here Miss Keziah. Come down to be my first one. 
she was crying. She came down. She was so afraid, put her, put her foot in the water. She came down, and I didn't know whether she was going to back out before she got down there or not. And I got her finally in the center of the pool. And I had been practicing on my wife in the hall of the parsonage. <laughs> But, in, <laughs> but anyway, you know, it came time. And she was so terrified. I mean, she was just. So I, I did what I'd been taught to do. I quoted the Great Commission and so on like that. And it come time for me to take her back. She wouldn't let me. <laughs> she wouldn't let me. And it was a very embarrassing thing. I mean, it was here my first baptism, and she wouldn't let me. I knew I had to get her under that water, though. <laughs> and so, back when you're 24 years old, you know, you do some stupid things sometimes. <laughs> and so, she was a, a, really a sweet lady, but she just had a, she was terrified. So I knew I had to get her baptized, and the only thing I knew to do, I just reached down, got under her legs, and picked her up and slam-dunked her. Wham! I mean to tell you, she came up hollering, there's water going everywhere. Lawrence Lydecker had a fit because the water was going over the little glass there into, down into the choir room. I slam dunked her. <laughs> She's in heaven today, I guarantee you. She didn't don't miss, miss that. <laughs> first baptism. Oh, I had my first wedding here, first funeral here, deacons' meetings, and like I shared. But I guess I got baptized into the pastor. Right soon after I came, it, it was very, I didn't know what to do. They called me because we had these, everybody was farmers around here, little farm ponds around here. And they said, Pastor, would you come up here? Our boy, we think he's in the pond. And so I got, went up there and the grandpa and I, I was standing around the little pond, the farm pond and I was there when they pulled that little six year old fella stiff up what do you say you're not prepared for that in school lo and behold about three weeks later I got another call from the Talbert's farm Pastor, would you get some men in the church together and come up here quick? Our little boy has, can't find him. We, he's gone somewhere. Would you get all the men? So I got all the men I could in the church, and we rushed up there and went through the cornfields and all looking for that little boy. But I knew just as quick as I got up there where that little boy was in that farm pond. And I watched him being pulled up.
Yeah, I've got some memories. Some of them not so good. Let me tell you about some good ones. Uh, we used to have back then soul winning courses. L.R. Scarborough from, from Southwestern Seminar used to teach these study course books. We went through all of those study course books on soul winning. So what we did is we canvassed the whole area here. And then we had laymen, lay-led revivals back then. And we had these men come in from all over the state. And they'd pair up with our people. And we'd go door to door and share the gospel with people. We covered every home in the area. And these were some great times. We had a lawyer that led it. We had a, a, a tremendous uh, wealthy truck, uh, owned truck, trucking company that helped us. In fact, Ken Simpson is here today. He was a part of that. But um, we saw so many people saved, and I'd have a revival. We'd have the weekend revival with the layman, and I'd, I'd preach for, to Wednesday with another preaching revival. And one, we saw so many adults saved. I've never seen the like adults saved. I baptized 26 people out of that one revival there. Praise the Lord. So in good times, good times, good times. About that time, we had a, a development start up here. This was all rural, farm area, and some new homes began to be built in up there. And so we wonder, how could we reach these people? And we had a lady move in there, and her husband, and she came to me and she said, Brother David said, we'd like to open our home to Bible studies to, to see if we can reach the other people in these new homes here. And I said, that's great. So she opened up her home on a Friday night, and I couldn't believe it. The, the house was filled with people to, 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 to do Bible study, people that were not in connected with churches. Many people were saved. Linda had already been saved, but she's a product of that Bible study. I baptized her husband, former husband, before he passed away. Came out of that Bible study. So we got some good things. Good things. Ken Simpson back there was my chairman of deacons, and he come to me one day and he says, God's called me to preach. Well, they always told me, when I started, if you can do anything else, don't preach. Don't pastor. So I, he t I took him over to that little white church was beside this one, and I tried my very best to talk him out of it. I said, Ken, if you can do anything else, don't you do this now. I couldn't talk him out of it. I took him over to Gardner-Webb and got him started at Gardner-Webb. I can't believe it. Now he's retired as a Baptist minister with, what, 40-some years in the, in the ministry. I'm old. <laughs> I mean, I'm old. I guess the big thing, though, that, that during that time for me was when I'd come home from school and my, my wife and I would listen to the conference hour from, from Black Mountain um, every day 
and I heard a message that just killed me, so to speak. You see, I had got kind of discouraged, and he said, he got a temple truth, he says, you can't live the Christian life, and boy, when he said that, I said, amen, because I seemed like I was messing up everywhere I turned. He says, only Jesus can live it. If you'll become available and give your life to him, he'll become your life and he can do it. Well, I'd always tried to do it for him. I thought maybe my education, my study, and everything else would do it. It's not enough. So after hearing on the conference hour, I went up in the organ room. That was my place of prayer in the organ where the speakers are in the organ room over there, went up in the organ room and said, Lord, I quit. I just make myself available. If, if anything's good's going to come out of my life, you're going to have to do it. I can't do it. It was as though God said, boy, I've been waiting on you to come to this. That started, I've been preaching now for 54 years. When I left here, I went to a church and stayed there for 32 years. Can you believe a person, a church would put up with me for 32 years? <laughs> I hope you do, Scott. I hope he stays 32 here. And then I lay, I retired and went into doing interims and revivals and all up in the foothills and Lenore and Morganton and all. We had a great time. And then they called me back and said, we're going to close this church if you don't come back. So I came back. We've had a good time there. It is it's wonderful. Pitts was a cannon that shot me off into the ministry. Oh, Jesus became alive in me here. He was my Savior and He was my Lord. But while I was here, He became my life. And he wants to become your life if he's not. And my part, listen, and your part is to become available. Abandon yourself and let him do whatever he wants to do. He's got great plans for you. He's got great plans for this church. I just want to point you, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. If Jesus continues to be the evidence at Pitts Baptist Church, your best days are in front of you. Your best days are in front of you. I thank the Lord when Scott came here. God prepared him over there in Gastonia at the Parkwood as he experienced how to deal with the multi-staff. And don't you have such a great staff? Wow. God prepared him for that. Mm. Wow. And the past shepherds of this church, I want to say thank you for them each one of them have been so different, style, different style of ministry, a different flavor of personality. But every one of them, God used to reach people to 
and those people became evidence of God, Jesus is alive, and their lives were changed. Every one of them. But let me say some other person I thank God for, and that's my wife. I couldn't have done it without her. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Just look. Look at all these witnesses. That Jesus has touched your life and has changed your life. You're an evidence. Creation is a great evidence that God exists, but you're a better evidence. Nothing like a changed life. And to be theologically correct, I would even go further to say an exchanged life. You died and Jesus became your life. I told my people for 54 years when I leave the pulpit, I love you and you can't do anything about it. Law, law, law. <laughs> now that's my expression, law, law, law. You know where I got that? When I was dating my wife first started dating her I said honey can I kiss you she said no <laughs> I said come on just one little kiss she says no if you kiss me I'll call the law <laughs> well I just couldn't stand it any longer and I grabbed her and I really planted one on her you know what she said Law, law, law. <laughs> Good morning. Pastor Scott, thank you for having me. Kevin, I forgive you. My hair grew back. It's all good. Uh, no hard feelings, but it is a joy for me to be here because I love this church. This was the church where I came to know Christ nearly 20 years ago. This was the church that baptized me right there. This was the church that discipled me. This was the church that taught me how to read the Bible. This was the church that taught me how to share my faith. I went on my first mission trip through this church. At this church, God changed my life, so I'll be forever grateful to you. So I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm going to pick up right where Pastor David left off in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, go to turn, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to continue looking at verse 1. So Hebrews chapter 11, we have the author listing a litany of people who have gone before, gone before, us, in, before us in the faith. Abraham, Moses, the prophets, people who are exemplar, exemplars of the faith. People who ran the life of faith faithfully. Then it's as if in chapter 12, the camera moves from the past and it pans to us. And it's basically saying this. They ran their race. They ran the race that was marked out for them. Now it's our turn. God has marked a race for this church. You know, I wonder if those who started the church 75 years ago could possibly imagine what this community looks like now? I would say probably not. 
the way Pastor David reminded, it was, it was farmland. But God knew. God knew that it's no accident, it's no accident that he puts you right here in one of the fastest growing parts of our entire country. And since 75 years ago, you had no idea, but I'm placing you here for a purpose. The need for faithful gospel witness is greater than ever. So my question is this, why has God given this church such a great legacy of faith? Why? Why would have God done all this stuff for us in the past that has been so great? It's because he has a race for you still to run. The race is just getting started. When I was a senior in college, I thought it would be a good idea, a few friends of mine, to run the Disney World Marathon. We thought, what a great idea. We'll road trip down to Florida. We'll go run through all the amusement parks. What could go wrong? Um, Now, there were a few very clear problems with this idea that I failed to acknowledge at the time. It was a very bad idea on several levels. First, I was in terrible shape which is never a good idea when you sign up for a marathon. So couch to 5K, good idea. Couch to marathon, typically not a good idea. Second, I had never run consistently in my entire life, and I had never run any long distances. And in fact, I didn't even really like running. So if you have never run, you've never run long distances, and you don't even like running, signing up for a marathon also is a bad idea. But nevertheless, over the next four months, I started training. It wasn't great training, but it was something. So the time for the race came. You have to wake up early, get all your racing gear on. I mean, I was a novice racer, but you, you, know, you buy the shoes, you buy the shorts, you buy the shirt, and you wake up at the crack of dawn. You fight through the crowds, thousands and thousands of people running this race. You get in your starting position. We were starting in the very, very back. The good racers start in the front. The bad racers start in the back. So we were in the very back. And the race starts, and we start feeling really good about ourselves. We start running, and we're like, you feel good? Yeah, I feel good. You feel good? Yeah, let's go. So we're running, and we're running way faster than we trained. So for the first 10 miles, we were feeling amazing. We were passing literally thousands of people. We thought, man, we, this is better than we thought. This marathon thing is easy. Until about mile 15, the adrenaline stopped pumping, The crowds and the racers, the glamour of it all stopped, and my legs just said, nope, (laughs) we're not going to go any further. Every little, every step, it felt like I needed to lift my leg up and drag it along. I was exhausted. I was discouraged. I was burnt out. I was like, how am I going to finish this race? Putting one foot in front of the other was painful. I had started well, but I did not finish well. The passage that we're looking at in the book of Hebrews this morning was written to a group of Christians to encourage them in their race of faith. They had started well, and the author tells them how they can endure, how they can continue to fulfill the mission that Christ had given to them. You see, we have a very rich legacy of faith at this church. The fruitful history of ministry has been going on for 75 years. But here's the question. How can you be sure that this legacy carries on to the next generation? You have started well. How do you make sure you end well for the glory of God? Thankfully, the author of Hebrews answers that question for us. So I'm going to reread this passage really quickly. I know it's almost lunchtime. And then I'm going to give you three encouragements that the chapter gives us. So, therefore, 
since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so close, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, as you press on in this race of faith, three words of encouragement from this passage. First, run with steady persistence. The author of Hebrews says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. There are lots of metaphors for the Christian life and the Christian mission in the scriptures. It's like a pilgrimage, a long journey that you go on. It's like a battle. At times they're compared to farming. But several times we see this comparison that your life of faith, this mission that God has given to this church, is like a race. The Greek word for race is agon, where we get the word agony. This is not a leisurely stroll. This is not a light jog. This is not even a 100-meter dash. The Christian life is like a marathon. The mission that God has given this church is a marathon. In the ancient world, that same word was used for an athletic event called the pentathlon. The pentathlon was a five-event sporting match that ended with a Greco-Roman boxing match, which sounds amazing. You, you would run, you would jump, you would uh, throw heavy objects, and then you would square off in the ring with your opponent. It was an agonizing event. So imagine Michael Phelps. What, what if that happened today? He's in the 100-meter you know, men's freestyle relay. He gets out of the pool. He throws on boxing gloves. Now that's something you would watch, wouldn't it? The author of Hebrews says the Christian life is like that. You're running. You're tired. Okay, then you got to swim. You get dunked a few times. Then you got to sh- throw the shot put, and your arms get tired. Then you look up, and as soon as you get your breath, some guy is trying to wrestle you to the ground. The Christian life is tiring and difficult and long. The author says, be prepared. Are you ready for that type of race? We don't need just to run for the sake of running. We need to run in a certain way, with endurance, with steady persistence. You see, the Apostle Paul, he makes a similar point in the book of Philippians. You guys know this really strange saying? He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's not a word that we say very often. Reasonableness. And it's one of these words that's really hard to translate from the Greek. But it literally means this. Gentle perseverance. Steadfastness. Stability. Steadiness. When people look at your life, Paul is asking, do they see a carousel going up and down? When times are good, we're up. When times are bad, we're down. Or is it steady? Is it persistent? Paul describes this as a type of spiritual buoyancy. You guys have been out in a boat where you've seen those big ocean buoys? Yeah, that thing might get dunked by the waves. That thing might get um, knocked by a ship. But it's always going to pop back up. That is what the author is talking about here. There's a type of persistence a type of steadiness that should mark our race. I think we need to reintroduce the word plotting to our Christian vocabulary. Plotting is defined like this, to work with constant and monotonous perseverance. It's putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward even when you're exhausted, even when you're suffering, even when you're burnt out. I think sometimes if you're like me, I want an instant fix. I want to be in the fast lane. I don't want to jog. I want to sprint. But 
Often when we want to be fast and flashing, fast and we want to be flashy, but the Christian life does not work that way. It's a long race. One pastor says it this way, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. That is what God has called you, he's called me, and he's called this church too. Our culture seems to value people who sprint. Our culture seems to value churches that sprint. Those are the people we want to be like, but the Bible seems to value those who plod. Those who with steady perseverance obey God when they don't feel like it, and they faithfully put one step in front of the other even when it's difficult. We have to run with steady perseverance. Second, second encouragement, beware of the obstacles. Second, we see that there's two types of obstacles in this passage. Look at verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So weight that hinders us. We have to lay aside every weight. Apparently there are things that weigh us down that are not necessarily sinful. But that makes sense, right? If you're going to run a race, you don't show up in flip-flops carrying a heavy backpack and you throw on blue jeans. No, you want to set yourself up to do the very best. If you want to run well, you have to travel light. So I remember in that same race I was telling you about, you could tell very, very quickly who the serious runners are who are going to compete to win and who are there just to have a good time. Those who were there to compete, they wore very, very short shorts, tank tops. They barely wore anything. They wanted to travel light. Those who were there to have a, have a good time were dressed like superheroes. They were dressed like Mickey Mouse and Tinkerbell. I even saw Elvis. Now, is there anything wrong with dressing up like Elvis and running a marathon? Of course not. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you're competing to win, it's probably not a good idea. The author says we have to lay aside every weight. If we're going to run with steady perseverance, sometimes that means we have to say no to good things that prevent us from doing the primary thing, making disciples. Sometimes there are things in our lives that are legitimate. They're not sinful, but they're a weight for us in this race. Sometimes that's true in the church, too. They hinder us from following Jesus and fulfilling the mission that he has for us. I'll just be personal. One thing for me, years ago, is social media. Social media wrong? Well, Twitter wrong? No. But I felt it was a weight. It was a weight that was preventing me from fulfilling the mission that Christ had given to me. I had to set the weight aside. See, the process for us, many times we're making decisions, we, we say, well, what's wrong with it? Is it okay? Does the Bible say this is bad? Instead of asking the more biblical question, how is this going to contribute to the mission that Christ has given us? No longer is the question, is this bad? Does the Bible speak against it? The question is, how is this going to contribute to the mission that Christ has given us? Or, is this a good thing that is preventing me from doing the primary thing that God has called me to do? What legitimate thing in your life, what legitimate thing in the church has become a weight? What is slowing you down in the race that Christ has called you to? Second, he says, not only do we lay aside these weights, but we lay aside the sin that clings so closely. I won't go into details here, but this word means distraction. Because you see in a race, it's one thing to be carrying excess weight. You're wearing sandals, you're wearing a backpack. That's not good. It's another to be running in the entirely wrong direction altogether. And that's what sin does. We're running and plodding and we're struggling. And all of a sudden we look up and we realize that we're running the wrong race entirely. That is what sin does to our race. We pursue the wrong things. 
The author of Hebrews says, throw it away, get rid of it. As the Puritan uh, John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And finally, I want to encourage you with this. The author tells us, keep your eyes on Jesus. How do we do all this? Yeah, running the race and fulfilling the mission, that all sounds really great. I've tried it. I'm not real good at it. How do we, how do, we do this? You see, all these things we've been talking about are good things, but they have no power in themselves. They're the engine, but they're not the fuel. The author clearly tells us where the actual power is. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you're running, you cannot look down at your feet. You can't look around at your circumstances, but you have to focus on the prize, which is Christ Jesus himself. It says, consider him. Think about it over and over again. Meditate on him. Think about the gospel when you wake up. Think about him over lunch. Think about him as you're laying your head down at night. Look at who Jesus is. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith did not start with us. It was his gracious pursuit. He intends to perfect what he began. If you're tired and discouraged this morning, look to Jesus. He's not just the founder of your faith. He is the perfecter of your faith. He will finish what he started. So keep plotting. He is both the author and he's the perfecter. Look to what Jesus has done. This verse tells us that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Jesus' race led him to death so that our race might end in eternal life. He took our shame so that we might live in freedom. He is seated at God's right hand with all authority, showing that his work of atonement on our behalf is finished. Because his work is finished, we have hope that ours will one day be too. Because of Jesus' work, you have everything you need to finish the race that God has called you to. And finally, look to why Jesus came. Look to who Jesus is. Look to what Jesus has done. And look to why Jesus came. Why did Jesus have to die? What was it that held Jesus on the cross? What would he obtain after the cross that he did not have before? Glory? He already had that. Lordship over all creation, already his. Contentment, already had that. Lived in perfect harmony, perfect contentment for all of eternity. What did he not have? You and me. He came for us. It was for the joy of reconciling you and me to God. Jesus stared right through the cross and saw the joy of saving those he loves, of saving you and me. It was not drudgery for him. It was delight. This should show us how valued we are to God, how much he values this church. He didn't just die for us. He was glad to die for us. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Is your race marked with that kind of joy? Where no matter the difficulties in the journey, where you're plodding, maybe you're plodding uphill, is your race marked with joy? The psalmist prayed it this way. Give me an undivided heart that
that I may fear your name, Psalm 86, 11. This morning, I want to close by asking God to give us an undivided vision for Jesus alone, that we might fix our eyes completely on him as we run this race. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your love. We're grateful for your grace. We're grateful that it was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross. God, I'm thankful for this church of 75 years of faithfulness. God, may this just be the foundation. May we be, may have we only seen just the beginning. May our race have just begun here in this church as we see you move in powerful, powerful ways. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.